next on Twin Peaks. This kind of fire starts. No! It is very hard to put out. He comes in through my window at night. Catch you with my deathbed. You may think I've gone insane. But I promise. Who are you? I will kill. Teresa Banks? She's a girl. Are you talking about that little girl that got murdered? Man, this case gives me a strange feeling. Who do you think this is there? I've already gone places. It was a dream. I just want to stay right here. We live inside a dream. February 23rd, 1989. This is where you'll find you. Mike is the man. Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see. One chance out between two worlds.
back everybody it's time to jump in the boat once again with the chopping wood inside podcast i'm murphy is tom out there tom are you still in the lodge like me it's been two years buddy i've been in the lodge since 1990 uh dude actually i think we could time it we were in the lodge probably when the movie we're about to review firewalk with me came out as soon as it was panned lynch was humiliated on the stage of can uh, all of our friends betrayed us you and i had a falling out about it and uh we were in the lodge for a few years after this movie and now we're back to review it, and it's a fucking masterpiece, but back then it was not considered so. I don't know if kids these days understand that. This is true. I think I was more like Cooper, alone in the lodge for not 25 years, but on an island loving this movie, because I think the first time we saw this was its premiere, which was August 28th, and we saw the first showing at like noon. We were in Arlington, Texas, uh, with, I think, Carter and Sandra, two of our friends, and I think the consensus was after we, there were like two other people in the theater that what the hell did we just watch? And uh, I loved it personally, but you all, I think, disliked it tremendously. Uh, well, I thought it was a little too long and I still do think it's too long. And it was very it was very painful to watch. There was a lot of anguish going on. And I wasn't prepared for that as an 18 year old kid. There was a lot. I, I could appreciate it. I just watched it again last night. And. I totally appreciate like Laura's journey and the suffering. I, I feel it. It's like, really intense, and the acting is way better than I gave her credit for back when I was a kid. Uh, so yeah, it's it's fucking a hard piece of uh, Lynchian cinematic fucking juice to be able to process as a kid. But now I can, right? This movie, Fire Walk with Me, I think of any movie ever that I've seen <laughs> of all time. <laughs> of all time, this was the most anticipated film. The one that I was most obsessed about when the release, when it was, you know, when I knew it was filming and following it as best I could pre-internet. And then when there was a release date, gearing up for it. This was the movie. The only two other movies I can think about that might come close um, are Batman, which was in 89, which I was really excited to see. And the other one, I think, was Return of the Jedi in 83. I was a huge Star Wars fan. And I was a little bit older. Empire, I was still a little too young to kind of, you know, uh, know when, when it was coming out or whatever. But those two movies. So this, I was obsessed. I, rem- I remember we were, Murphy and I had just started college. And I would pick up a blurb. My, my sources of information were USA Today, TV Guide, and Variety, and like Entertainment Tonight. And then Movie Time, which was this cable show. It was E, right? It's kind of like E before E. It was, yeah, E, which is, does E still exist? I think it does, yeah. They primarily had like they showed trailers and they would talk about upcoming films and go behind the scenes with certain films or whatever but um after reading blurbs on firewalk with me i think first in usa today and then the tv guide and seeing like david bowie was going to be in it and harry dean stanton and uh i think the next thing um i saw was that it was going to premiere at Cannes, and then e or movie time they had a whole can special and i remember seeing a trailer for the first time like in May or something of 92 
And it was, I, I, I taped it and I watched it over and over and over. I was obsessing. I loved it. I couldn't wait. And then I had Premiere Magazine. I remember seeing the, the, the one, the ad. I think Eddie Murphy was on the cover for Boomerang. Jeez, and, nice memory. Jesus. Well, you know, I don't really have much of a life. So how but, long was it between the show's ending and, the, and Firewall Can coming out? So the end of Twin Peaks, the series was, I think, June 10th, 1991. We watched, it was two, they, they put the final two episodes together. And then we watched that. That was it. And I think Lynch was already working on this script. He had a deal with this French company called CB, I think it's CIBY 2000, like a three-picture deal. And I think Firewalk With Me was the first one. And uh, and so he wrote the script with Bob Engels, who co-wrote a lot of the scripts of the original series. And um, they started shooting, I believe, in early September. So it was a very quick pre-production a quick production and a quick post-production i think from start to finish it was probably you know around a you know less than a year we could have spent more time in the editing booth (laughs) (laughs) well we'll talk about that and and many other things but so yes i was obsessed and uh you know murphy and i and our crew you dragged me to that noon show being very upset about that i was a little tired and then i believe (laughs) you also dragged me to see an evening show like the same day and the first time, I was like, uh, okay, this is cool, a little depressing, but uh, yeah, no Bobby Briggs and no Ben Horn. Uh, the second time, at night, I think I was, it was excruciating. By like the halfway through it, I was really suffering. And I think you saw it multiple times in the theater after that, but that was it for me. And uh, our friend Carter was like the stupidest piece of garbage I've ever seen in my life. And everyone <laughs> mocked us, like all the rest for months. And it got panned, and you got really uh, – you thought that I, I somehow predicted what the, uh, oh, the first yeah. week opening <laughs> box office was, $1.9 million. And somehow it popped into my head. You're like, you did not. You, you read that somewhere. I was like, no. So we were having a fraction between our relationship because I, I started to slowly pull away from the Lynch fandom because I was, I was so disappointed and hurt. And uh, you kept it going until Lost Highway. I didn't really come back. It was was uh, on the air and was like hotel room and stuff after that, <laughs> which is completely sent me. We also gathered around for that shit as yes, well, we and it was a fucking disaster. And uh, I was just so hurt. It took me a couple years. So I'm glad you kept the torch going, buddy. That's I, why we're here yeah. today. Well, you know, first of all, 1.8 million. That was the one that you guessed. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, you did. I couldn't believe it, and it was that's it was such a poor number. I was shocked, and then Murphy got it, and I think I was just... Yeah, I thought I was lowballing it. I thought I was lowballing it when I said that. But you were right, and I remember reading a blurb. I can't remember who who was quoted. Someone with the production, it wasn't Lynch. Someone, uh, the interviewer asked the, this person, you know, well, do you think it'll be a success? Yeah, obviously, they're hoping it would be a success. And the person said, well, if everyone who watched the last episode came to the movie theater it was like i think 10 million people watched the uh on abc the, the finale series finale then we would have a huge hit <laughs> like that's gonna happen yeah okay. and like you know forty thousand people probably went to the theater to see it so yeah. but you know what it did killer business in japan i mean they went crazy for it they loved it they loved it, it so did the french did not like it i think they did okay in france did it, get, it got I mocked it, at Cannes, though right did it get mocked it got mocked booed? at Cannes, but that's international press yeah. yeah it got booed i think roger ebert was leading the the boo charge and i think a lot of it was kind of the and Lynch has even said this. There was something in the air. I think he was being like pulled down after being on the pedestal of winning the Palm d'Or for Wild at Heart and Twin Peaks. Every time. Yeah. yeah. And this this movie, the the television, the very first shot, I mean, it works on two on two levels. It's uh, not only is it the smashing of the television of like maybe the perceived anger on Lynch's part of the series being canceled and being forced to uh, alter the narrative where Lynch and Frost originally didn't want to solve the murder for forever. 
and having to compromise that. And maybe the, that, that anger metaphorically with smashing the TV, but also it works on another level of what you're about to see is not what you were watching on the television. This is not going to be ABC's Twin Peaks. And that, for me, is the reason why it was universally panned by critics and most of the audience disliked the film because the expectation was that they were going to get not only that original Twin Peaks vibe, but they were going to get some closure of the series finale with Cooper, with Bob, and well, no. if they had kept the, all the entire full cut, they did have some closure. They just cut it out of the movie, as I saw on the missing pieces. There was a little closure. Did you think find it funny though that he does bring us to the end of the series and back. he gives us like forty five additional seconds? Yeah, it's hilarious. And he just kind of gets on the floor and oh, I just I fell down. I was I need to brush my teeth. It struck me as, as funny here. Well, but Annie also the ring being taken well, yeah. from by the nurse, the mysterious nurse. Who was that? I thought she might have been the uh, the waitress in Judy's Diner in Part Eighteen. Like she's been stuck in the lodge ever since you put that on. Because once you put it on, you're fucked. <laughs> Where is the ring? Someone knows. I know. I think since there was no window Merle in Firewalk with me, no mention of Wyndham Earl. And uh, there was Annie, but the the main plot line of the second half of the second season of, of Twin Peaks, which I think Lynch didn't like that direction. What does he have against Heather Graham, Tom? I don't think he has anything against Heather Graham, but I, I don't think that he liked how that plot line unfolded. And I think it probably the source of that was their original intention was for Cooper and Audrey to get together. Oh, they kiboshed that. Lara Flynn Boyle kiboshed that. Right? Yeah. So how, how can Lara Flynn Boyle kibosh that? How was Lynch able to uh, let her run the show? The you know who she was dating at the time? Kyle. So Kyle really put his foot, on, foot down on that? And said, I think it was a whole John and Yoko thing, baby. Really? I don't know how it went down. To see a, a behind the scenes on that, Tom. I would like that to see drama. that. Yeah. Okay, so Wyndham, no mention in Firewalk With Me whatsoever. Makes sense. And not even in season three. Annie... I think because he used her in the lodge, I think it was important to have some closure with that because of her relationship with Cooper. And that was his whole reason for going into the lodge. And they both came out. But by having that scene of Annie in the missing pieces in the hospital with the ring. So she's now the next victim, Teresa, Laura, now Annie. But since the nurse takes the ring, I think that removes Annie from any future plots because why not just have it be very mysterious like as cooper and the missing pieces goes the ring the, or the little man goes the ring and he goes annie annie so he thinks that she's got it she does but then she doesn't have it anymore so i think that was his way of basically shutting the door on that one yeah i liked in the missing pieces how he was asking the little man like who where's the ring and he's like it's with someone else and he was like annie but then he realizes that it's fucking Mr. C, and it's him, that he's the one that's got the ring, and he's running amok. His, his dark side's running amok, and he kind of, like, stands around like, well, I want to be here for a while. <laughs> and they go into his head, you go through the curtains, and that's it. That could have ended like that, I think. It would be great. Yeah, it would be interesting <laughs> if the Cooper that Post-credits. we... Post-credits. Post-credits, right. If the Cooper that we saw in the Black Lodge, the Red Room, and the Missing Pieces, I think that is Cooper, the one who's trapped, as Annie said. But it would be interesting if... Perhaps that Mr. C, the doppelganger, to maybe if, if at least one of those scenes, like I think there's one of them where he tells Laura, don't take the ring. Yeah, I that love those scenes. 
if that was Mr. Because the whole thing is if you take the ring, Bob can't possess you. So what he's telling her is don't take the ring. Let Bob possess you. And that would be something that Mr. C would want. Oh, so you think he was already inhabited by Mr. C when he did in the retcon now. So you look at that scene where he goes, don't take the ring, Laura. He's really Mr. C trying to double switcheroo. Maybe at that one moment. I kind of like that. That's very interesting. I mean, I don't necessarily. Although I love that's one of my favorite scenes of Cooper being the real good Cooper and doing some good because he's giving her a warning there before she even meets him. Or he never met him. But uh, so you're saying it was Mr. C the whole time. The whole time. (laughs) This is not a confirmation. It's just (laughs) throwing it out there. It's possible. I like it. The whole thing with the future past. There weren't many instances in the original series where we're dealing with uh, kind of a, a fluidity of, of time where it's nebulous, like future, other than the lodge scenes and the dreams or whatever. The one thing that I can think of off the top of my head, the scene in uh, the second season with uh, the Tremont, Mrs. Tremont and, and, and the grandson, and with Donna, with is that cream? Did I request cream corn? I did not request cream corn. The the grandson says the je um am solitaire, which is kind of the foreshadowing of the Harold Smith. So like they as lodge spirits would maybe be privy to future events. So that particular moment was really one of the, and that was a Lynch directed episode where um, we we could be dealing with the future past thing, but really it was Firewalk with me where the line is it future is it past really played more of an importance and we're dealing with some time inconsistencies here. We don't know, at least with the Philip Jeffries character and Laura and seeing Cooper in the lodge, especially with the ending, how is he there when she had just died? He hasn't even come to investigate. And that's what I love about Firewalk with me is that in the first 30 minutes of the film, he is basically creating or expanding on the mythology of, of the original series, which mostly focused in on dreams in the Black Lodge. And he created in 30 minutes the Blue Rose, the ring. Judy. <laughs> yes, yes, Judy. Uh, the Woodsman, the name Chalfont, um, the uh, the number six electrical pole. Um, uh, I think I'm probably missing something else. Well, well, I mean, Harry Dean. But no, that's, <laughs> you know, the whole Deer Meadow thing. But these... These um, these ideas, legend, yeah, he built off the legend, the mythology, the mythology that's built into like it's tied into like you know the lodge and the lodge spirits, the convenience store, which was referenced in the original series. But he created this whole mysterious narrative set before the events of the series with the Teresa Banks's murder, Teresa Banks's murder, in thirty minutes, and it's really the things that the supernatural aspect that played into season three. I mean, all of those elements played such a crucial role in season three. So what Lynch is doing, I think, is I think he was setting up not necessarily another TV show, but maybe a series of movies. I think there's been talk of like a trilogy. But called Night Nurse? What's that? Is it called Night Nurse? Because it's all the nurse who takes the ring. But I think that's what he was doing is because you know he he knew he only had a certain amount of time before he needed to get into the Laura Palmer story but he did it in my opinion so masterfully see I think this first section of the film and we've got it playing in the background right now which is just a nice little touch Murphy you recommended it that thanks man that. I like that. all of the visuals buddy yeah and uh, they're having a couple of good morning America right now but uh, that he was able to do this and with the Chet Desmond wrote it on the fly because Cooper was supposed to play this role Cooper was the one who investigated Teresa Banks' murder. 
but he didn't want to have a full... Although he did come in for that cutscene in The Missing Pieces where he's talking to Diane. <laughs> he, really, he came for that, really? Come on. Come on. That, that was an embarrassment. That, okay, so that <laughs> it had was... had to be just warming up. It had to be just warming up, right? Yeah, that was... Yeah. I, I think Workshop that was on that shit. the worst scene in The Missing Pieces. Yeah. Uh, it just... In the history of Twin Peaks, probably. Well... That's why it was cut. Smartly. You know, Pine Weasel? Yeah. Well, Civil War? Kind of like the weasel. <laughs> the great sea where it starts running amok in the, in the pageant. It's running on the ground. The, the weasel cam? Love it. You like the weasel cam? Yeah, I love the weasel cam. You like the weasel on the Dick Tremaine nose? It's Yes, it's so bad that I just had to laugh, Tom. After the 54th episode of viewing, I, I, watched, I watched it a couple years ago, and I, I found some humor in it, actually. You I did. I texted I remember you. you I, think I was that. like, you know what? Yeah. The, the weasel's okay. Isn't it interesting, though, that... What he's doing is he's trying to guess what Diane has changed in her office. Apparently, this is some routine that they do every Thursday or something. And he's stalling, trying to figure it out. And do you remember what it was? Uh, he moved the clock. Yeah, 12 inches to the left. Yeah, so time. He's moving time around. Okay, See? I, get it. Yeah. I mean, that's very meta, Tom. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, another triumph for the dashing Andy Cooper. And now, Diane, you must clean the coffee cups, get fresh ground coffee from Sally. And make a damn great pot of coffee. Personally, this is my favorite section of the film. I love the whole movie. I, I love Firewalk With Me. Let me just preface this. I've always loved Firewalk With Me. I've always found flaws in the film. Um, and mostly those flaws are when Lynch has to reference something from the original series. Like when when she's when Laura is with James in the woods at the end, like even Donna doesn't know me. And then that scene with Sarah, where she has, when she comes home that final night, she goes good night, sweetheart, because that's what she said. Those seem more artificial to me. For me, I think this was like a transition film, a transition in David Lynch's career. I think when he did the second season premiere, our favorite episode, and then his subsequent episodes in the second season, I think he was he was transitioning as a filmmaker going to a deeper place, less narrative coherence, a little bit more with abstractions, I think more with his Well, he had no frost either, right? Get past the thing that you maybe did before and that's now tired and um, and you want to, you know, break through to something something else. A lot of destroying. And if you're if you're not um, uh, if you're not up for destroying, uh, you just can't get there. The reason this movie exists is because he was in love with Laura Palmer. He wanted Laura Palmer is, to Tom. exist. He still is. He, he, I, I agree. This first section of, of, of the film, what we were watching was an anti-Twin Peaks. It seemed almost deliberate that Lynch was... Kind of like The Last Jedi, Tom. That was the anti-Star Wars. <laughs> you did like that. <laughs> that. Dear Meadow was the anti-Twin Peaks, just like I think Twin Peaks was more like Dear Meadow in season three. Lynch was taking us to a different place, not only stylistically and narratively, he is opening up a broader mystery. He's gone! He's gone! Albert, call the front desk! I've got the front desk now. He was never here. And news from Deer Meadow. Agent Chester Desmond has disappeared. Gordon, what's going on? You don't like this section, though, as much as the second half. No, I don't. I, th I think the second half is the real beat of the story. This is like uh, kind of like season three light. <laughs> it's kind of like a weird amalgam. I, I think the performances are a little strange. Um, I obviously like this scene right here. Obviously, in Philadelphia, when Philip Jeffrey shows up, that's fantastic. But like Cable Ben Steele, dude, turned out. Tuned out. 
two down. <laughs> so there's shit like that that really, but I'd, I'd loved, uh, I still liked it, but I think that like the second half, if I think of Firewalk with me, it's all about Laura it's with Teresa and the whole, her decline into, or, or and her salvation, descended into hell and descent into heaven, depending on your interpretation of the ending. You don't find the Teresa Banks mystery parallel to what's going on no, with Laura? No, I love Laura. that. I love that. The whole Teresa Banks stuff is great. Because? Just the FBI stuff I'm not a huge fan of. Although Lil, great. Because the, the, I think the big revelation of, of this section, well, we don't get it in this section, but we find it later on, is that Teresa Banks and Laura Palmer knew each other. They do each other very well. No, see, I like that. See, it's all good. I'm just like, yeah. you know what it was? I just I look at Chris Isaac, and I wish that was Agent Cooper. That's it. I remember I, that one when I was watching it the first time in 92. I was like, God damn it. What the hell have I been sold a raw deal? <laughs> so I was very upset. And if he got sucked into the lodge, I do like the fact that we saw that Chet Desmond got sucked in before him, but I wanted to see him in season three wandering around the lodge somewhere with the eyes. The Teresa Banks aspect of, of this, a fire walk with me if you think about her character, now she's 17 years old. She doesn't look like a 17-year-old teenager. I know. She looks at least 10 years older. But she is a waitress, just like Carrie Page in season three. I think there are some, and she works at a diner. I think there are some parallels with Teresa Banks and Chet Desmond and Agent Cooper and Laura Palmer. It seems like Teresa Banks is... Chet Desmond's Laura. Laura Palmer yeah. and Agent Cooper and his investigation winding up in the Black Lodge and Agent Desmond's investigation winding up somewhere probably similar that you think on another plane, another timeline, just like it's Cooper the White Knight yeah. trying to save Laura. Yes, yes. On one aspect, that's part of his persona, but it, it's also by saving her, it would be saving himself and others that Chet would be doing the same thing. He's trying to say, when he goes down and picks up that ring, he's trying to save himself. That's what he's doing. You're right. It makes sense. He's got the same uh, hero uh, mindset. And he's like, maybe that's how the lodge uh, hooks in these guys with a honeypot. They have the blonde, <laughs> trouble, woman in trouble. And the hero guys get sucked right on in, friend. Right on in. Well, I think that's the beginning of Lynch his been journey. And uh, <laughs> I think that's the beginning of Desmond's <laughs> journey. I don't think that when he touches the ring that he disappears. I know that we fade out, but that was what? the Chow Font. Uh, that's the Chow Font. That. Where that's is the, he? That's the Chow Font trailer. Yeah. That's Mrs. Tremont. Yeah. Now we still don't know what their affiliation is on the side of good or on the side of evil. So my guess is that he got the ring and had some kind of interaction with them or something related to that number six electrical power pole, which led him to their trailer. So maybe he got sucked up there or something. But I think that Desmond didn't just poof, vanish. I think there was a little bit more to his investigation that we just so, didn't see. So when Harry Dean came out and he was gone, that was like down the road. That was the time, time jump. Doesn't does that happen? Is there a scene where like he goes out and suddenly he's gone? He's like, what the hell? What's no, going? Cooper shows up like oh, okay. you know probably a couple oh, of days yeah, later. Okay. Oh, then he shows up. I guess because his car remember so had the Let's Rock and it was yeah. all dirty, so yeah. he's gone. But we don't see that. I think that it was also a way for Lynch. He wanted to use Kyle McLaughlin as Cooper, but he wasn't able to do it, so he created Desmond to facilitate this mystery. But it was also a a mysterious way to end. 
Desmond's storyline. And if he wanted to pick it up in the future, he could. But if he didn't want to, and he didn't, or Frost and him didn't in season three, that we're still talking about Agent Desmond and what he could be doing. It was a perfect decision. He didn't have to give us any finality or anything more than him just reaching for that ring. But that was, I mean, the ring is, I think, the most important symbol in this movie, Firewalk With Me. It has got the insignia of Owl Cave. Jeffries mentions the ring. Desmond mentions the ring. Cooper mentions the ring. The little man with the ring. It's on that ceremonial table, which is something that you picked up on. Remember that table in the lodge and the ring is on it. And I think it's the same table in season three. And it's got this, it's like marble, I think. And it's got these blue streaks in it. You thought it looked similar to... Yeah, like a river tributary. It looked like it was almost like a cosmic map that like matched up with Tom Sizemore's dangerous shoulders when like yeah. a buggy was up there looking at like going, and I'm from here. And he was kind of pointing and I'm over here. It looked like that was maybe like some sort of living map itself because those blue streaks in that marble were kind of like moving and Look kind of like space. So I thought that was very interesting. I never noticed that before. Is that in the missing pieces or is that actually also, can you see that in the actual movie? I believe you can see it in the movie, but it's more, I think, pronounced Pronounced, in the the missing pieces. Yeah, you get a real good look at it. So yeah, check um, that out. uh, Also, as a quick aside, that the Fat Trot trailer park in Harry Dean and um, the citizens of the trailer park, that that curious woman with, you know, she's got the ice pack. And then, then you have the old woman with the walker. Like, everyone's infirmed. And then we also have uh, several moments in this section where some looping is going on. Older where? man in the diner with the French woman. Are you talking about that little girl who got murdered? He says that twice. Uh, Sam says to uh, Desmond, uh, we sure do need a good wake-me-up, don't we, Don't we, Agent Desmond? So these kind of like this, I'm not saying it's glitching out, yeah. but... It could be something with this future past. This this investigation is not normal in many ways. On the surface, it is. It's just this young girl that got murdered, right? But Cole is somehow privy to this being a very uh, mysterious... It's a little case. Blue yeah, Rose. a Blue Rose case, like yeah. almost off the bat. So how did he know about this? What I want to know is the little scene, the red wig... The red dress, she comes out, does her little thing or whatever. Do you think Lil is an FBI employee that Cole goes, Lil, I need you to put on a red dress, a red (laughs) wig, make a sour face, do this. Or that she might be, I wouldn't say a large spirit, but somehow tapped into... Ding. That's it. She's tapped in. She's like in the woods somewhere, like a soothsayer, like tapped into like the cosmic forces. And he gives her a little jingle and she speaks in some like code and he goes, get your ass down here. Tell us what you saw. <laughs> That's, she probably doesn't even speak. She probably just speaks in her gesticulations. So th- do you think She's maybe that is why Cole knew of this particular crime, that it had some supernatural aspects to it yes. for him to uh, proclaim it a blue rose investigation yes. and send Desmond and Stanley out. Yeah, especially since in 17, like, uh, Diane shows back up after being Nido, and she looks an awful lot like Lil. She's my mother's sister's girl! The most iconic moment of the opening section, the prologue, if you will, is the Jeffrey scene. Um, not only because it is David Bowie, because it marries, I think, the mystery of this burgeoning Blue Rose uh, plot point with the 
the the icon that is David Bowie with a Louisiana accent and red <laughs> shoes and, <white> shirt. <laughs> and talking in riddles basically and somehow Lynch the filmmaker the artist is able to use a name as 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 simple as Judy and there's something about Judy something about Judy that I, uh, maybe it's because we know it's Judy but just that as soon as he mentioned Judy it's just pop something goes off synapses or something and you're off in some kind of dream world and that moment where he shows up and points to Cooper because we have the whole thing with Cooper with the, the surveillance cameras and yeah, it's all about surveillance talk. I think he's reenacting his dream isn't that what you think is going yes, on yes 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 because he told Gordon because he had a dream this happened and it was a premonition right and it's a yeah. week before Laura Palmer died now here's right. the thing is that even though in the film it's a year before it was written as a week before Laura Palmer died. And I think just for editing purposes, it made sense to stick with the prologue and then go right into Laura Palmer's story. In the script, it it went uh, from Cooper investigating uh, Desmond's disappearance to Laura, her first day walking to school, and then it went back to Philadelphia. Oh. And I had a dream, and it ties into Laura more. But they changed that. And I think it was the right decision for the film. But for me, the canon is that scene takes place a week before Laura Palmer's murder. It carries more narrative weight coming on the heels of Laura Palmer's last seven days. So, so how he, come, if this happened before Laura Palmer's murder, and they knew about Judy, how come no mention was of Judy in the entire series after they had already had that event? You would think that would have been something they would have investigated, Tom. Well, I think this is Lynch <laughs> creating <laughs> <It's a> mythology. <laughs> he's expanding it. Yes, he's expanding it. Yes. Well, there was that scene in the original series with Major Briggs. Judy Garland? Judy Garland. Do you think that uh, Philip Jeffries had anything to do with Laura's death? Somehow he was on the wavelength tied into like maybe enabling Cooper to like connect with her psychically and through the dreams or was it like what was the what was his connection to that or was it just completely something a side trip he's taken I think probably most people would think that, that Philip Jeffries had nothing to do with Laura's killing or like being selected like he, he was just like on his own journey through space right I right. think it foreshadows Cooper's journey in season three especially you know, the time jumping being lost in time. And whatever Jeffries, his investigation is tied to Judy. Cooper's is tied to Laura. Maybe Desmond and another timeline is tied to Teresa Banks, these three women. But what I think, my theory is with Judy and Firewalk With Me, now this doesn't hold true with season three, but I think Lynch wanted to do more Twin Peaks after Firewalk With Me. And I think that since he loved the Laura Palmer character, that he wanted to see her move and speak, and he wanted to give her kind of a happy ending but I think she was uh, integral to the world of Twin Peaks and that just like they created the Maddie character that if they were to do future Twin Peaks that she wouldn't have just been a lodge presence that she somehow like with Carrie Page in season 3 that he would have gotten her out as either another character or as Laura Palmer like we saw with Carrie Page and my theory is with Firewalk With Me if he was doing more films in the 90s that Judy would have been Laura Palmer. It would have been either another character or it would have been Laura assuming the guise of this. Judy Page? Judy, Judy Page. Because the number one tell for me is at the very end of the film, 
when you see the mask and behind the mask is the monkey and it whispers, Judy. The next image we see is Laura wrapped in plastic and you know Doc Hayward removing the plastic and we see Laura. So we hear Judy and then Laura. Now, why did Lynch return to Judy after the name drop of Jeffries in, you know, the 30 minute, you know, 30 minutes into the film and nothing else afterwards. I think it was like, I'm not going to talk about Judy. In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. And then we go into this whole Laura Palmer segment here. We see the last seven days of her life. She winds up in the lodge and where Lynch would maybe go down the line is with this mysterious Judy. I think it would have been another guise of Laura Palmer. Yeah, I can see that. Sure. She's Judy Page. <laughs> <laughs> But it didn't happen that way. Somewhere like in the intervening 25 years when Lynch and Frost came together, I think it became more of the Jowde. It became more of this neg- extreme negative force. Wouldn't and it be cool if like during the interview at the FBI office, if they said like, I'm not going to talk about Judy and, and uh, Albert comes out and here, have some tea. And he brings a little tea kettle. Looks just like the one he's in. It's easy to <laughs> Good foreshadowing. <laughs> We get to see the convenience store. We get to see the woodsman. We get to see the electrician. We get the jumping man. That was the one thing I forgot earlier, was the jumping Extra man. woodsman. More. Two woodsmen. Yeah. Well, the electrician, that's right. I thought he yeah. was a woodsman. I didn't know there was an electrician. There is an electrician. That's, yeah. You know who that is. That's Reggie from Wild at Heart. That's right. That's right. Calvin Lockhart. So we get to see this scene. It's almost like a meeting of the spirits. And the way that it's blocked is that the spirits of the Tremont grandmother, Tremont, grandson, the electrician, the woodsman, the jumpy man are kind of back towards the wall. And then at the table is the little man and Bob. And it seems like that is whatever the the major debate is. And it seems to be Bob going rogue and not following whatever rules that they have with their, the Garmin Bozia so they can all feast if that's really what it is. And I think that the ring, which the man from another place, I think he concocted or created out of that Formica table, somehow is the compromise that if Bob's intended victim wears that ring, he cannot possess that particular person and harvest and hoard all of the Garmin Bozia. And I think that's what we what we see at the end of the film is when you know Bob shows up in the Black Lodge, he takes away Leland's pain and sorrow, the blood on the ground, and then we see the man from another place eating his cream corn or whatever. So, but I think it, it, it's that's that's kind of a literal interpretation of it. I think there's many many other interpretations, but it seems like at least in, in Firewalk with Me, the relevance of the ring is somehow to thwart Bob from possessing Laura Palmer but at the same time yeah, I thought if you put it on you were fucked though how can it be you're, you're dead yeah you're dead well, you die. either way you're fucked <laughs> watching this film again it's so good it really is it's just a testament to I think Lynch's filmmaking and Cheryl Lee's performance and Ray Wise's performance that that carries the film but like Blue Velvet my favorite Lynch film it, each time I watch this film, I have a different emotional response. And this time when I watched it, I really felt for Laura. The pain and suffering, the Garmin Bozia of her world really resonated this time uh, deeply with me. But Laura's not possessed by Bob, 
but I think maybe a little part of her is like well, she is. Yeah, you get that scene of the which is in front of the fan that they cut out of the movie, which I can't believe, where she slowly turns into the Joker, the full <laughs> smile of evil. That was fantastic. That was fantastic. I can't believe they cut that out of the movie because you get to see that she was slowly being taken over. And then I love like then Sarah shows up afterwards. That was also in the missing pieces. But like she's looking for a sweater and she goes, she's freaking out, having a panic attack. She says, "Mom, you're wearing the sweater." And she's like, "It's happening again." And so it makes me think that this is like one of those Leland Bob moments that happen have happened a lot over the years. And she thinks she's going insane, but really maybe there's like Leland's in the like uh, in the attic right above like the fan the whispering, <laughs> doing the Bob whisper. <laughs> He'll come down in two minutes and go like, hey, what's wrong? What girl's up to you? Everything fine? Like, he'll come back and... But I think he was nearby when she was doing the Smilex. <laughs> Love that Joker. <laughs> Love that Leland. Well, I think the reason why that he cut that particular part out was because it might have been a little too on the nose that Laura is succumbing to Bob. Did, was there ever really any question she was succumbing? We all do what happened. Yeah, but right? the whole thing is that he wants to be me or he'll kill me. Yeah. So he wants to be her. Um, and at the end of the film, when they're in the train car, he puts the mirror down. Now, I don't know if this is going to be part of the ceremony because she wasn't wearing the ring yet. She sees his face in her with the reflection, just like everyone else who's got Bob in him. So I, I think that there is a little residual Bob in Laura, and I think it's why she does the things that she, she does. And Fire Walk With Me, there's not a lot of the Laura Palmer with like, helping Johnny with his homework. And we saw the Meals on Wheels, but teaching Josie, like, you know, helping her with her English. We saw more of the sexual side, the manipulative side. Lynch chose to show more of the the darker side of Laura Palmer. Uh, and I think the reason why is because he wanted to show the trauma. I don't think it would have played well showing her do these lighter things just like the scene with ed and norma in the car and pete and josie with the two by four these in the <laughs> sheriff station you know with andy and you know those are lighter moments and it would have been too jarring i think this was about laura's descent into hell and this really is like a suburban gothic horror movie it really is this is not this is there's there are not very many moments of of levity there's not really no. any comedy in here lynch's patented absurdist comedy is not in this film there's a couple of bits in the deer meadow where's my goddamn hot water carl and in the giggling the snickering giggling secretary i mean there's some moments which are a little bit you know i guess could be construed as as, as humorous but overall it's it's dark this is a very very dark dark chapter which plays into why it wasn't as popular. But Laura Palmer herself, I never would have expected this interpretation of it. I was expecting the, like, we would see the surface Laura Palmer of, like, everything is fine, and then see a little bit of hints of the darkness. That's what I thought going into the film, because that's what the series, at least from my, you know, uh, takeaway, was that nobody knew that she was in trouble. I mean, Bobby said it at the funeral. Since that they would have known. And that missing pieces scene with Doc Hayward and Eileen when Leland called. Everything's all fine. Like, I used, like, Huckleberry and, and each muffin. And uh, Doc Hayward tells her about the, the angels will the come. The poem, yeah. The poem. Some hope. She loves it's all it. the hope and happiness. And then and Dad that, calls. And then Leland calls. And then you see Doc Hayward's expression. She's like, ah, she's got to go home to that. Like, goes, he knew. Go home. And then she went out and screamed that I'm not the muffin. Or I'm the muffin. <laughs> 
That's right. They cut that out, though. Sad. The delivery, not so good. I would have done, like, another take, probably. That's probably why I cut it. Oh, I like that scene a lot. You, you I like that. Yeah, I, you didn't like the Doc Hayward scene. I like that a lot. I, it showed the flip side of Laura's home life with Donna's home life. It was everything that Laura didn't have in her life. And even though it was just one scene, and we kind of knew this, I think it was a great contrast. I understand why they cut it, why Lynch cut it. But um, we did get that scene in the missing pieces of the happy dinner scene. With Leland teaching. I kind of like that. Swedish. I Hoti like Flushi, that. Lapa, Leland Palmer. <laughs> I was trying to memorize it last time. I've forgotten it. <laughs> I try to repeat but it. But you can also see why that was cut. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It doesn't fit tonally with Laura. This is Laura's story. This is Laura's descent into hell. I did like the last uh, the scene where it kind of repeats the scene where Leland is coming home and she's hiding in the bushes in the, in the missing pieces <sighs> at night. That is some great acting. That is so intense and fucked up. That is a great scene that she jumps on James's bike and, and takes off. Why was that not included? I think that was just like one of the best moments in the movie and one of her best moments of acting and his. I would have kept that scene. I would have kept the fan scene. I would have kept the log lady at the very end. You know, just hearing the screams. It's like, what, 10 <laughs> seconds? Yeah, 10 seconds. Um, but I think especially those two scenes, especially like the, the Leland coming home, that had... That was so potent. That was so dark. And then Laura's smile. It plays in uh, tonally of what Fire Walk With Me as we know it is. So why didn't he he choose to do that? But at the same time, when we see Leland, because we don't see Leland when she's coming down the trellis and she gets on the bike, she's just you know sneaking out of the house. And then when we see Leland, like in the window, the close-up, yeah. I mean... It's a great scene. But they already did that in the episode. Or it was kind of like an ape where, where he was in season or season one, episode seven, where they just, Maddie sneaks out and he's yeah. sitting on the couch and he yeah. turns. So it's a little like that. I also love the scene that they cut out where she... The first scene of her in front of the fan where she is able to like transcend reality and see the convenience store. It transitions from a convenience store scene into Laura sitting by the fan and seeing like fragments of that convenience store above, like laid over like trees. And so you could see that she's able to like go between two worlds there. And I thought that was something that I'd never seen before uh, either. And I liked it a lot. That was one of my favorite bits of the missing pieces because um, Lynch added that superimposition of the trees over the, the convenience store and they're kind of like you know the doubling of the spirits and it made me think that especially on the heels of season three that was a a way to visually show the spirits inhabiting the the evil in the woods like harry said in season one that's always been there they are there that when they descended from pure air they're not just tied to this dreamy above the convenience store uh, uh, location they permeate the woods and the scene of Jerry in the woods and Stephen and Gersten in the woods both having even though they're all on drugs but that's how they were able to see it she probably was on cocaine when she's sitting right, in front of the fan freaking right, out right that opened up her mind she is trapped between two worlds she's trapped between the light and the dark she's trapped between the red room and the reality of her bedroom where she's being you know nice rhyme <laughs> she she's being you know sexually molested and she knows it's leland when she runs out of the house after seeing bob like looking for the diary she's like no 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 it's not him it's not him it's not him and then when he he that great scene where he transitions from bob to leland when he's rocking in the bedroom yeah and he comes in and he's like Good night, princess. I love you so much. And then she looks up with a tear and she goes, 
is it true? She knows it's true. When she's doing... He's gaslighting the fuck out of her. His yes. Whole, her whole life. Yes. Both she of them. knows. But it could work on one level that she is creating this mythology herself of these supernatural beings that are responsible for her dad being possessed and raping her and drugging her mother. And she's created this white knight of Cooper, you know, who can maybe save her. But it does work on two. I think there are some people that can watch this movie and go like, well, this is all metaphorical. You it's know, a metaphor, is, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the first time, that was very heavily like the interpretation. Wasn't it right. John Thorne? I mean, a lot of people thought that. And a lot of people who have gone through tra- a trauma themselves and have experienced it, they used that this was cathartic for them. They felt like it was a personal story. So, yeah. Right, yeah. right. But Leland is he ain't normal. complicit. Yeah. I mean, I think it's obvious in at least not so much in the original series, but in Firewalk With Me. That with Teresa Banks, I don't think he's full Bob. I mean, I think he's he's a dirty bird, you know, and uh, a dirty turtle. A dirty. (laughs) I want to know. Okay, who who gave uh, Teresa Banks the ring? I think the one armed man is the one who. Isn't there only one ring? Have you tracked the ring to see who's got it at one time? Like how you know? I guess that was before the show, so we didn't know who had it. So it went from like Lincoln to Sacagawea to like her to Trump to (laughs) to Jack Parsons. Yeah, Jack Parsons. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's just one ring. I don't. That I think the Teresa Banks wearing the ring was kind of more of a like plot device, um, because Laura knew her and saw her with the ring, and because she was a victim of of Bob. What we know about Teresa Banks was that she lived in proximity to the Tremont slash Chalfonts at the trailer park, and there was the number six electrical pole, and Bob Leland was having sex with her, so. They were on to Teresa, or maybe they were on to Bob. And see, that's how I interpret it, is that because of that convenience store scene, is that Bob is the rogue evil. And all the other spirits, they have to use their wiles, so to speak, to prevent him from hoarding all of their pain and suffering from the, from their victims. So what did the Chalfonts do? They they moved in. They knew that Teresa was going to be the victim. The whole future past thing is, and either they or the one-armed man gave her the ring. So when Bob killed her, he couldn't harvest all the pain and suffering. And the same thing's happening in Firewalk with me. The Tremont and Mrs. Tremont and the grandson show up, give her the painting. And the one-armed man shows up in that classic scene of the traffic light. It's him. It's your father. He's got the ring. So they're now coming towards Laura because Bob is, they know that Bob's going to go after her. So that's one, that's another way. Well, I like it. It's like a symbol. This would look nice on your wall. Hey Tom, remember that theory you had during the season about the painting, which was really interesting. And maybe it was actually even before. Yeah. When did you come up with that? Was that, I think that might've been even before the season started, but you're talking about how Laura getting that painting, when she goes into the painting and firewalk with me, that maybe like her shadow self was left or the real Laura was left inside the painting and her devilish one came out. Yes. I still, still believe that kind of think that. So what is the rationale for the painting? So like we discussed, the Tremons are somehow receptive to, Laura's plight in the sense that, you know, Bob is going to harm her in some way. So what is their role? They show up with this painting that would look nice on her wall. What does the painting do? The the painting is an entryway to the convenience store, but we don't really see the convenience store proper. We just see Mrs. Tremont and the Tremont grandson. You see the wallpaper. 
<laughs> we do see the wallpaper. And then we see the red room with the man from another place. And Cooper says, don't take the ring. But we also see um, Annie in her bed. So is this a dream or is this a portal of some sort? And I think it's a combination of the two because of the future past. We're seeing the future with Annie in her bed, telling her to write in her diary the events that take place after her death. And we're seeing the red room with Cooper also in the future. But the little man is saying, is it future or is it past? And he's saying, don't take the ring before she's dead. I think it's a combination of dream and portal. And I think the dream aspect is pretty much everything that we're seeing because we do see a shot of of Laura asleep at the very end of this. But I think that the one section that is the portal is when Laura actually gets up out of bed when she sees the ring in her hand. So she has the ring, which is the dream. But then she gets is that up the first time she ever got it? Yeah, she got it within the dream. So when she wakes up in the morning it's not there. But she gets up out of bed, she hears Laura, you know, that Sarah Palmer familiar sound cue from the pilot after she's dead. And she goes to the door of her bedroom and she opens it and she looks over her shoulder at the painting and she sees herself in the painting and she sees a kind of fetishized version of herself, like more kind of what we saw at the end of the film when she's dead. The hair is more kind of made up and she she looks kind of lost and she looks kind of sad. They're looking at each other. Well, no, the 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 Laura paint the Laura in the painting is not looking at the Laura in the bedroom, but the Laura in the bedroom is looking at the Laura in the painting, and I think that's what ultimately freaks her out, and that is pretty much the end of this dream slash vision. But it's possible that what this represents is uh, that the Palmer house itself, I think, is a portal of some sense because of the ceiling fan. And like you were saying, Leland in the attic, you know, talking through or whatever, not really, but, you know, it's funny. <laughs> um, but Bob and the electricity in Laura's bedroom and talking to Bob, who are you? Who are you really looking up? And that could be a, a, a result of the painting or it could have always been that way. But I think that was given to her to give her another out Sometimes things can happen just like this. Yeah, I think the painting is a backstop to don't take the ring, Laura. It could also mean a escape for her, that a part of her, just like a part of her might be already possessed by Bob, maybe the, the lighter side of Laura, the good side of Laura, has an out or an escape hatch within this painting. Now... With that that's said, what the Chalfots were giving her. They were giving her the painting to be an escape from the, the ceiling fan evil. Uh, that's that's a very succinct way of putting it. I think and maybe the dr- the dreams was like just the medium, the channel in which the port there she was able to access the portal and the, the other world. Yeah, I don't think she ever dreamt of Cooper before that moment. So it seems like that also is some kind of like the fireman had those those warning bells in his mansion that showed him the, the Trinity test explosion that maybe this is the painting is kind of that version for the lodge spirits, at least. Maybe it went off in the past, and that's why he sent the painting down to the Chalfons to give to Laura. I just had a question, like, whether there was a difference between the dream that she was experiencing and whether there, and the, and the actual 
portal or her being able to go into the other world. Like it could be one and the same. Okay, so her relationship with the spirit world before receiving the painting was tied directly to Bob. And then the moment that she received the painting, she had the vision dream of Cooper, the man from another place. She saw the Tremont grandmother and grandson. And then eventually she saw the one-armed man. So that was maybe the impetus uh, for the the supernatural aspect, whether you want to say it was a dream or, or, uh, or not, that from that moment forward, those elements were converging in her life as her death neared. Yeah, and we always suspected, like, when Sarah Palmer was watching the television of the animals tearing each other apart in the return and whatnot, that the up- upstairs, that painting was still hanging. And we thought at some point she was going to walk up there <laughs> and there was going to be some painting uh, storyline, but there wasn't. No, I, I, I agree. And I watched that scene recently and, you know, she's just drinking and kind of just numb watching the carnage on television. She reacts when one of the animals is devouring the head of, is it, what is it, a caribou? Yeah, Linus's, yeah, taking taking out a caribou. Perhaps. Anyway, the, the, the animal that is getting destroyed, killed, you see very clearly its eye. It almost looked like a gold bead at first, but it's, it's not. You see its eye, and you slowly see the eye close and die, and that's what she's reacting to. At least that's what I'm inferring. Is and she it, getting pleasure from it, though, or is she, like, uh, suffering from it? No, I think what it's tied into the drink full and descend, um, uh, the horse is the white of the eye and dark within, and something about the eye and it, and it closing and dying is somehow triggering that bug within her. Yeah, so when she's watching the caribous, that she's really just like her. She's she's the Sarah who's trapped in this, like, lodge box inside this house, right? You see her at the door talking to Hawk and whatnot. That's really kind of like Judy Sarah. Uh, but uh, the ones you see when she's just watching, and she goes down, like, run over the left. <laughs> like, that's just really, that's the real Sarah trapped in, trapped in her, like, her version of hell, her version of the lodge. And that's what we thought with the relevance to the painting is that if that painting still exists somewhere or maybe just the fact that it existed in the home and was put up on the wall at one point that it was always going to act as some kind of portal or uh, dream vessel. And we have Sarah and we have Alice Tremond. We have two people living in the same residency and Cooper's question of what year is it might be irrelevant it might just be multiverse spooky action from a distance is what they call it quantum (laughs) physics i guess if this theory were true though um in part 17 instead of sarah smashing laura's painting she'd be smashing the or laura's picture she'd be smashing the painting oh yeah that was judy trying to destroy the the chalfontian good portal yeah but there was no no reference to the painting at all she pissed off she's a little disappointed right you didn't see the painting in return yes i wanted to see the painting yes i wanted to see we talked about that a lot actually we that maybe the last scene was going to be that. He walks <laughs> up the stairs with, with Laura, Carrie Page goes up the stairs and walks right into the painting. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Donna. Let's go. The pink room scene, which is probably other than the Philip Jeffrey scene, the most potent scene in the film, not only visually, when I saw it for the first time, 
it was just so loud. And I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen a scene require subtitles when they were speaking English. I'd never seen that before. And that made me like, that, that thrilled me. It was like, wow, this is just, I was vibing with it. The whole, the, the constant, like kind of droning of those guitars and the percussion and the red lights. And then Jacques with his nonsensical dialogue and uh, Donna. This was actually the one scene that I think everyone agreed was awesome when we first saw it in 1992. <laughs> we all love the scene. Viscerally, it's, it's fantastic. But we're seeing Laura, just like in the train car, when Renette sees the angel, she has this look of anger. Like, why Renette? Like, I lost the angel in my room, and here I'm at the moment of death, and an angel shows up and saves Renette, unties her rope, from the one our man. wrists. Excuse the me? The one our man's angel. No, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Who ties and, her then? Ties her then. <laughs> and, you know, she... Laura gives the wink to Buck to dose the drinks and to give Donna the heavy dose. And I think a part of Laura wants to see Donna succumb to the darkness that she's been succumbing to her whole life. And then only at the end, when she sees her being groped by... I think his name is Tommy and she sees the electricity. I think in the script, Bob was talking to her and that's what freaked her out. And then that was only then when she, the, the, the kind of the, the sense of reality came to Laura and she had to get Donna out of there. But Laura manipulating her best friend, who's by the way, we never knew Donna Hayward was a virgin until the missing pieces. Oh, how did you know that? Because she says in the missing pieces, like I think I'm, 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 I'm thinking of doing. Oh, it doing with Mike. it! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she's ready to give her virginity up here at the yeah, the virginous best friend with the great family and Laura Palmer, the dark side of her that has used prostitution as a means to get drugs to numb herself to the reality of the sexual abuse in her home. This is the moment that. She lets that darkness overtake her while Donna is being overtaken. She likes seeing Donna, I think, be like her, even though in the next scene, I don't want you wearing my stuff. But she she pushed her to the edge. She really did. She took Donna to the edge. Now, Donna was a willing participant up to a point, but once you're dosed and drugged, I mean, all bets are off, and that's what we're seeing here in the pink room. Yeah, I'm not necessarily sure that she like you know was willingly doing this. I think that she's doing it through her own like conditioning her entire life. Like this is how I find approval and affirmation through men, and that she's she's probably looking at her and she feels like okay, I'm gonna fuck her because she's such been she's been arguing with me all night and they're having conflict um, about her entering into her private world. But I think she's screaming on the inside. I think she doesn't want it to happen at all because it's like a symbol for herself. Like the power is so strong that's going to take over even not just her but her best friend who's so clean, virgin, such a you know good girl. To see that happen is probably agonizing, and that's why she blew up and stopped it. Hello, Rodas. Jacques, it's Teresa. Teresa, <laughs> how you doing, eh? I'm okay. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the most horrific scene in Firewalk with me? The scene of Bob looking for the diary or the scene in the cabin at the end of Jacques Renault and his tidy whities Jacques, definitely. <laughs> Although I did like the scene of the Mystic Pieces where like, uh, Teresa calls him and asks him about like, Leland. He's like, oh, yeah, he's a movie star. Handsome. Real good looking. 
Got the wavy hair. Oh, yeah. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I never thought of Leland as a movie star guy. Because they said that uh, Cooper was movie star handsome. So this right. probably is a low bar in Twin Peaks. Well, you know, when Leland is walking out, he's about to meet up with Teresa and Laura and Renette, even though he doesn't know it's Laura and Renette. He's got kind of like a strut like a peacock a little bit. The sun is hitting him just right. He kind of looks like a movie star in that scene. Yeah, no, he does. He's a very handsome man. He is. He's a very handsome man. I never would have man. thought of that, though. It's shocked to anybody as a, as a movie star. I think his few scenes, like even on the phone at the Roadhouse when he's talking to Bob, he's like, <laughs> why, are you, why are you calling me when you're just desperate, baby? You know, maybe, Bobby, maybe. You know, baby. And... <laughs> And uh, and then the pink room, he dominates that. Like I am the great went. There is no tomorrow. I just loved his character. You I see loved... some of his evil charm. You see some of his like the, what, what he's really like. Yeah, not just a two, two dimensional character. See, a little, I mean, it's evil charm, but there's some charm involved. He's, he's he funny. does. He's, he's got guy. kind of yeah. that French Canadian yeah. charm, and yeah. it's like he, he the, even though I love Bite the Bullet and the original series, Laura's wild. Those girls ain't you know like uh, they they ain't no nuns or whatever. He was good. But in Firewalk With Me, at the end, when Laura's like, don't tie me up tonight, it showed the real like drug and alcohol-induced Jacques that he really didn't give a shit about him. He was going to tie him up and do what he wanted with them. Yeah. And that, act, add, that adds an extra la- uh, layer to his character, which I think was missing in the original series. So do you think uh, Walter Olkowitz is Jacques' brother and the return was equally compelling? Work. You mean Jean Michel? Yeah, Jean Michel. <laughs> Was he copping? <laughs> After all these years? Bobby, watch. That's a good one. Really good. You're a great the drug deal with Mike and uh, or Mike <laughs> and Laura and Bobby. That's great. That is such great scene. a great scene because the surreality of Bobby, you Kid killed Mike. Mike. Now he here's what it Mike. ties into is that remember the the whole thing Bob and Mike and, and Mike and Bobby and you know, there was that scene in the original series. She where, didn't mean snake. Yeah, right, snake. Yeah. Yeah. But when Cooper's telling Harry about the dream the first time. He's like Mike and Bob, and then here he goes, Mike and Bobby. It's, you know, no, different Mike and different Bob. But if we're talking about, like, Laura on the metaphor angle of creating Bob as her abuser and these lodge spirits that, you know, her boyfriend and his best friend, Mike and Bobby, and using their names, it makes no sense that Laura, in her drug haze, would think that Deputy Cliff is Mike. And then she somehow, it's almost like that, that supernatural side, that aspect, the things that she's been exposed to since she put the painting on the wall is now infiltrating like her day-to-day life. And something is not mundane is killing someone, but maybe that's what it is, the shock of killing someone that she has been exposed to so much dread and violence that here's Bobby's completely like freaked out that... Laura just goes into like, you know, funny mode and goes into her little happy, you know, crazy place. Happy space. Happy space is like, Bobby, I found a pine cone. And I just love how he's digging. He's not digging. He's just reverting back to childhood. Probably what she did the first time Lila was raping her. Oh, well, that's a good point. That's a good point. And also maybe there's like a metaphoric Mike within all of us. And so that we just say, you killed Mike, you killed your internal Mike, because really he was the one, our man. So he was like uh, the good within him. Once you you step over the dark side, you've killed your internal Mike, man. He's gone. There's no more one-armed man. That's good. That's good. And also, like, who is Bob's nemesis is Mike. 
Right. And so if killed- Laura has like a part of Bob within her, oh, you killed Mike. Yeah. You killed the one person who like wants to kind of help me out in some kind of way. And then there's that missing pieces scene <laughs> in the in the uh, in the <laughs> hallway. Great. I love that scene, which was great. She comes right back to it. Yeah, you killed Mike by in the in the Twin <laughs> Peaks High School. Like, Mike shut up! Right, right <laughs> down there. Yeah, there's the no hallway. one passing by. That was a hilarious scene. That was yeah, the that was just fantastic. Bobby, did you kill Mike? <laughs> I'm not gonna give you this if you don't stop fucking around. It's not one goddamn bit funny. I killed someone. It just the the contrast is just with what's going on. It's just this little set piece of all this darkness. Hey, let's go on a drug deal. You know, and like wind up killing a guy. It ties into Teresa Banks. It's like there is something with this kind of dream theory, right? I mean, with that whole prologue with Teresa Banks, the Blue Rose, the Fat Trout, and everything else. If you want to play into the theory that Laura is the dreamer and a lot of this is like her manifestation or whatever, there's a lot of meat on the bone when it comes to it. Yeah, and here it's almost like a reversal when she's like watching Mike like kill this guy and just freak out and panic. She's now like in the role of Donna, like watching her at the at the roadhouse, or she's seeing like her the someone else like make these horrible, and that's why she's kind of laughing about it because it's like a sick. It's almost like she's like going, you know what? This world's wild at heart and fucking fucked on top. Like they, she realizes that the evil is so strong that it takes everybody. It's already taken her pretty right. much, and now she's just kind of watching idly by as it happens with Bobby. You know the reputation of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me critically. It was deemed as one of Lynch's failures for many years, and now it's considered a masterpiece. Do you think it was because we now live in a different era? Do you think now people just can like appreciate it? The expectations are gone. The, thing the was, expectations for the original series. It, yeah, to be something yeah. completely different. Then right. now you're right. That people are more uh, tuned in to these abuse stories, and uh, it's less uh, unrealistic. It's actually there's a lot of realism, a lot of fucking gritty, horrible realism uh, that I think people can uh, appreciate artistically more than you would be going into the theater and expecting a, a Twin Peaks redo. Right. So that's why. Now, did you notice the high angle shots in the Double R Diner and in the Hayward House? Yes. And um, Surveillance, Tom. It's all about surveillance, isn't it? Well, don't you kind of think that that may be like the Angel POV? Those two locations, the Hayward House and the Double R. The Eye of God, but the Eye of Bob? <laughs> well, the Eye of Bob, I think, would be in the Black Lodge. <laughs> but... Those two locations, the Hayward House and the Double R Diner, are more kind of the sanctuaries, the benign locales where uh, the darkness doesn't permeate. And then we have this foreshadowing, uh, the angel, which is kind of an underlying theme. Lynch chooses this, this, this camera shot during those two scenes only. And the only other time I, I can recall it being used again in Fire Walk With Me was in the missing pieces during the Black Lodge scene where the little man has the ring and he shows it to Cooper and they both, he's holding the ring up. Like someone is up there looking down. That's what it is. And they, Cooper looks up and it made me think of the scene in part two where Laura gets sucked out of the lodge because we never had anything on the ceiling or above. Maybe that's the true evil. You know, that you have the angel point of view in the Double R Diner in the Hayward House because Laura's talking in the Hayward House about like bursting into fire, falling faster and faster, and then the angels won't help you because they've all gone away. And here it is, is that the cameras, you know, the, the angel POV is zooming in on her. But then in the Black Lodge, we have maybe, not in this movie, the Judy POV, but maybe like you said, the Eye of Bob. 
And maybe that's what it is. Maybe that is exactly what it's supposed to be in Firewalk With Me is the eye of Bob because of the, the convenience store scene with Bob and the man from another place with the ring is that he's showing Bob, who's like, you know, omnipotent or omnipresent, that here it is. Here's the ring. This is going to prevent you from possessing Laura. Well, yeah, well, the convenience store, it's above a convenience store. That's above their house. Like, it's almost like uh, the planes of reality and the return. It's almost like a hotel. Like, to where there's, or like a, there's multiple floors in planes of reality and, and timelines as well. So it would go to show, like, thinking about, like, uh, Twin Peaks uh, being between two worlds, like a convergence point, where this other reality, like the convenient, like the convenience store, like a TARDIS, can lay over like uh, Twin Peaks proper, so that it's all interacting within itself. And it kind of ties into that metaphor that they're just above. They're just there. Just got to pierce the wall, and you see them. And so they're watching. They're always like, when you see those above, yeah, it is like the eye of a bomb. I think it's very true, like you said, the convenience store scene, when the lodge spirits blend in with the forest, that we're seeing a little bit of that in The Return. Is that? And, and remember that scene in the convenience store uh, where they're walking down the hallway to go to Jeffrey's? Yeah, it turns to the woods. Yeah, yeah through the woods. Yeah, so like, close. it's almost like the convenience store, even though it is a location and it could appear pretty much everywhere, it, it, it suggests that Twin Peaks, since the events of Firewalk With Me, not so much in the series because it predates this mythology, that the spirits, their presence have always been there, but it's only grown and expanded to where Twin Peaks itself has become like a much darker place. And maybe that's what Deer Meadow was. And maybe that's why they knew about the events related to Teresa Banks so soon, because that town, if you remember from the missing pieces, when they talked to say goodbye to Jack, you know, that guy with the, you know, the Irene's husband or whatever, they're trying to break into some safe with the lamp. And there's like a woodsman in the corner, some aged woodsman is that he tells Chet, Oh, the FBI was here back in the 50s. It's a lodging hotspot. Ask Irene about that. Irene is there. Now, Irene is her name, and it is night. Don't go any further with it. There's nothing good about it. Yeah, do you think, like, maybe, like, we're talking about Chet Desmond and Cooper both chasing blondes in distress. Did I mention the fact, like, the possibility that maybe Philip Jeffries was also chasing, like, maybe Lois uh, Duffy or something like that uh, into the lodge back in the 50s or or whenever it was? Like, that that, she was, like, some sort of, like, uh, honeypot for whoever was chasing Lois Duffy? In the final dossier, it's all about Judy. It's Jowday. Is that's what Jeffries onto, is that spirit. I think in Fire Walk With Me... It's his Laura Palmer, his Teresa Banks, and I think it's Judy, whoever that is. I don't think she was an extreme negative force in Firewalk With Me. I think she became that through the creative process with Frost when they were writing season three. Don't take the ring. Laura Palmer in Firewalk With Me is fully conscious of the fact that Bob sneaks in through her window at night, there's the scene where she does two lines of cocaine right before she's going to bed. That's very hard to do. Very hard. <laughs> and then the flashes of electricity, and then we see Bob, and she pulls the bed cover down and lifts her nightdress up, acting as an invitation. And she has that look on her face like she... That's why she took the cocaine, because she was like uh, willingly allowing herself to be open to the evil coming to her. It's almost well, like the drugs have to make them open to it. So horrific. That scene of Bob coming through the window when he, they were shooting that Lynch had Bob rape Laura. He had Leland rape Laura. And then 
He requested a pig's head. Oh, come on. He's just torturing her. And Cheryl Lee said no. Yeah, come on. But what they did was they got it where they put it like on some kind of prop stick or something like that. And because there's a behind the scenes photo of a pig's head. And I think what she would have seen, Bob, and then she would have seen the pig's head and then Leland in kind of succession. But don't you think that would have been just a little too on the nose? Maybe of like, but it would have been grotesque. The pig's not scarier than Bob. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. It's animalistic, I get it. Yeah. And I had to add a whole pig element into the whole lodge lore. I'm glad that didn't happen. I know that she wasn't into it sexually. <laughs> That's <laughs> an understatement. Because I think that what she was her intention at, at, during that scene was to find out who this was. That she was it was building up to a point within her that it was not going to continue. She was gonna find out who it was, even though that she knew who it was. And I think that her decision to ask Bob, who are you, gave her the revelation that it was Leland. I think that was it. She had to, it took five years for her to, to gussy up the courage to, to do that because I think that she denied it for so long. But this is the final week. Things are accelerating. It's it's like, she it's everywhere she's looking. It's, 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 it's dark. These the, the spirits... Things are falling apart. Her relationship, she's falling back into the world of like drugs and prostitution. And she wants to put put an end to it. She's fighting back. And she finds out that it is her father, Leland. But he still wants to possess her. Do you think at that moment he's like, oh, no, i got to kill her now. I think he wanted to possess her up no. until the moment in the train car. Yeah, no, he wasn't trying to kill her. He wanted to keep her alive for the pain and suffering, right? He also wanted her to like kind of join her, join him. And the evil forces and be, go around like, you know, spreading garment busy herself and perhaps uh, turning other people to the dark side. But that would, he would leave Leland, they right? The galaxy together, yeah. <laughs> he would leave Leland, right? Yeah. And just be with Laura. Leland would be presumably either dead or without Bob. But, but Bob without a Laura, you got nothing. You got to go find somebody else. You got to go tra- track down the night nurse. Well, now that we know, <laughs> <laughs> now that we know what season three with Laura, the Laura Orb, that it makes sense that that she was created from the fireman, that it's like this, this cosmic power play. It still feels like a metaphor. Like he's been gaslighting her all of her life and so that she thinks she's going insane. She thinks she's losing her mind. And so that's the final realization. She realizes, oh my God, it's true. Which, what's worse, you're insane or that your father's been raping your entire life. So that drives her down into the road to hell. The one quibble with Firewalk with me is up until Laura's final day when she's going to school, it seems that events... editing-wise, are a little too quick. Lynch is unable to, because of the running time, I think, spend the requisite amount of time dealing with Laura's final day. That's my only quibble. I wish that the Bobby scene was longer like we saw in The Missing Pieces. Yeah. The Leland coming home um, when Laura coming down, you know, the trellis outside her window, that that would have added like a little bit more tension and mood and characterization, you know, of the final night of Laura Palmer. Do you think Laura, at the end, knew that she was going to die that yes. night? Yes. Yes. Pray tell. When you pray tell, she, I think it was all doomed. She knew it was going to happen that night. I, I don't know why, but she obviously knew. We never saw a date in the, the lodge or any sort of dream where they said it's going to be happening on this moment, but I feel like somehow she knew that was happening. She was saying goodbye. She was kind of like going down the path to hell, it seemed like. She was saying goodbye to the world, and 
going down. The entire like second half of the movie, she was basically letting go of the tether of reality and hope. And so by the end, she was absolutely tetherless, lost in her own like nightmare, and that it was going to happen. I mean, obviously, it could have happened the next day, but... Yeah, I feel like it was destined to happen, and she knew it was going to happen somehow, right? She did not know. She almost, like, gave herself up. It's Laura's diary. Page from her diary. Read it. We had that, you know, secret diary page that Harold Smith had, that Donna read, February 23rd, tonight is the night that I, I die, and she explains her thoughts at that particular moment, but that was not a Lynch-directed episode. That was probably, in my opinion, Lynch's least favorite episode because it was super high on the exposition. It explained everything. It explained the whisper. Lynch would never, ever in a million years tell you what someone is whispering. And she what, says... What part was that? And remember, my father killed oh, yeah, me. I love that. Yeah. And the whole thing, and the Cooper goes like, remember my dream? The little man, what did he do? He danced compulsively. All these, like, he tied everything together I in like, like that part. I one that. hour. I like, that I like the episode, but I can see <laughs> I Lynch like going, no, no! Mystery, idiots! <laughs> but when Laura is in the cabin, if she thinks that she's going to die, she's with four people. Did she really think that Leo and Jacques were going to leave them bound? And then she even tells Jacques, hey, don't tie me up. Not tonight. That makes me think that she knows that maybe Bob is going to come after her. And she doesn't want to be bound so she could protect herself somehow. See, I think that she didn't prepare herself to die. I think that was the day that she did die internally because it was the day that she finally came to the realization that, yes, after five years, it has been my father. And then she thinks of her mother. She thinks of everything else and going to school and the tear and the moving through time. But she's still preparing to party that night. She's still powering through. I think that if she had given up and prepared to die, then she would have just let herself stay in her room and had Bob kill her that way. Or but he couldn't have killed her in the house. He'd been suspect. Number one suspect, Tom. <laughs> one suspect the killing. Yes, I don't think that watching Firewalk with me again, that it was what Jacoby said in the original series. Maybe Laura came to the, the conclusion that she allowed herself to be killed. That's it. How about the missing pieces, though, that added that one scene where he walks in right before she jumps on uh, James's bike? Yeah. And she's, like, sitting here. She's hiding in the bushes. And she sees him look, ex- look directly at her with right. that pure evil face and then walk in terrifyingly right. and then she jumps on the bike I think she'd be like I'm going to die tonight I think she'd probably would be like he's coming after me Muppy <laughs> right. may I share something with you okay a vision I had in my sleep last night we gotta at least talk a little bit about Major Briggs uh, reading the book of Revelation yeah, finally. In the, in the missing pieces, I was like, finally we get Major Briggs reading fucking scripture. That's like, who's born to do that? Well, there's a lot of Christianity that permeating, running through Firewalk With Me with the angels. Yeah. Uh, the missing pieces, there's the uh, the Methodist church. See, for some reason, he had that scene of people coming out of the yeah, church. That's interesting. Yeah, I noticed that Methodist. It's wild. Don't you think Twin Peaks is missing, A, a priest, and B, a reporter, <laughs> intrepid reporter on the case? <laughs> oh, if I, was, I saw Bob, I'd, find, I'd come to Jesus. <laughs> Okay, so the train car scene, originally that was, I think, my biggest gripe because one of the most potent 
scenes in the entire series is that little glimpse of Bob killing Laura in the train car at the end of the second season premiere. So horrific, Laura with a missing tooth. Yeah, screaming like she's got like she's full of the evil. Like yes, the, the, the like freeze she frame. is yeah, like already possessed. One season two, great, great ending freeze frame. Fantastic. And then this one, it was more operatic. Now I can see Lynch not wanting to replicate that. His love of Laura Palmer only grew, and you know how many times did he put Cheryl Lee through the paces? Whether it's through a lot, whether it was Laura or Maddie, but it didn't have that visceral payoff. It's, tr- it's more tragic than horrific. It's pretty horrific, though, when she's they're leading. He's leading Laura and Renette to the train car, and it looks like he's like Santa on the sleigh, like with them tied up, and they're screaming. And that was fucking the evil fucking scene, dude. That is the most evil scene in the film, I think. It's like he's riding them like, you know, Santa and reindeer or something yeah. like that. Yeah, like a sleigh, an evil sleigh to hell. Yeah. Even in the train car, one of the most fascinating aspects that I never picked up on until I watched the subtitles is that Renette is speaking and she's talking about how she's not ready to die. And she's talking about father as if like, you know, maybe Jesus Christ or God. But she's also saying, I'm so dirty. It's like a final confession that she realizes that she might be at the end herself. And another Christian motif here is that she is confessing her sins and how she really feels about herself at the end here. And maybe that's why the angel comes for her there is because Laura never had that moment where she voiced, expressed her true feelings. She kept it eternalized. She numbed herself. Renette, in that moment, verbalizes it, and the angel does come to her. Laura gets it in death, but she doesn't get it in her final moments. But it does tie into your Christian philosophy idea that she confessed her sins before her deathbed. If you don't do that, then you're not going to hell. That was the old theory, right? The Black Lodge could be hell, my friend. We don't know. Yeah. Leland appears like Laura at Harold Smith's with the, whatever, the makeup and like his... Green teeth? The green teeth. Like Dude, it's that was like the, the green teeth was because of the saltines and apple butter. <laughs> That'll do it. Teeth. That's like the pain and suffering of Leland Palmer. It's like he, I mean, he just like, don't make me do this, is what he's screaming in the train car. Are you sympathetic towards him at all? Yeah, because I think, think he's a he, victim. That's what I'm saying. I think he was a victim. I think, but this is like a cycle of abuse we've seen that he was probably abused by Mr. Right. Robertson across the way, like at the old uh, lake, Pearl Lake. Pearl Lakes, yeah. So I do feel empathy for, for everybody involved in this. Sarah, L- Laura, Leland, Judy, <laughs> Jumpy Man. <laughs> the woodsman in the kitchen. <laughs> well, what do you think of this final scene here? Does this have like a strong emotional? No, because I see. I personally never bought into the whole like religious iconic that she's going to heaven and she's Joan of Arc and somehow sacrificed herself. So personally, no. I mean, I think it's beautiful and there, there's some. It's emotional, but somehow it rings a little hollow to me because I know she's in absolute hell and she's stuck in the lodge. And in part three, she's still there. So really, she's crying tears of joy, but there's really nothing to be too, too happy about. You can never erase the fact that her whole adolescence was warped by sexual molestation. Even in death, it's in her tears, even though she has her angel now, that she is forever scarred, even in death. Yeah, it's forever marked. But she also is a special soul. She's in the red room. She's with Cooper. Cooper is there. Is he her guardian angel? Well, no, he's Mr. C, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we thought he was. 
<laughs> well, why is he there? I got you tell me. You're the genius. I mean, he had the dream. He was obviously. I thought that he was there the first time when he try. He was actually um, on the good side when he was intervening there, trying to get her to take the uh, don't take the ring to go to heaven, or you know that, that that he was there to help her transition from the murder. Now that we saw the missing piece, or the idea that maybe that was Mr. C trying to trick her into not taking the ring, like uh, my whole mind is blown. I'm not sure what to think. Laura Palmer is uh, the victim, but. Yeah. Lynch isn't sugarcoating it. And even in the missing pieces, the scenes where it is seemingly innocuous, the innocent scenes where Laura's about to go to Harold Smith's and she wants to borrow the car keys from Sarah. She goes, oh, I got to go. I got, I left my books at Bobby's. There's another scene where Sarah's like, you lied to me, Laura. Uh, your books were in your room. And Laura's like, uh, you know, I know, I'm sorry. I just, but I had, I just had to, I just had to see Bobby. I know you don't like him. She lied to her, her again. So she admitted to lying, but then she told an immediate lie. Now on one level, you can go like, Hey, my mother is complicit in this. She's got to know what's going on in this house. And a part of me loathes her for allowing this to happen. But on the other side, Laura herself is, you know, still manipulating people. I, I don't think she knows any better. You just like with Bobby at the end, that scene, that great scene, where he's like, "You just want the blow." I know it. You just I love you just, that scene. Yeah, I love that scene. You just want the blow, and it's like, now I know that she's at the end. She just recognized that her father, and she's numbing herself. All these things here, but that's what makes this film so great and complex, is because it's not sugar-coated. You see the reality because you know, there are many Laura Palmers out there, and Lynch is like putting a mirror up in front of that reality, which is incest. Well, think about it this way. Like she has been abused, right? And so the abuser, unless like in real life, often be the abusee becomes the abuser right, when right, they grow right, up. Right. So if she was abused horribly and ends up abusing others, is she a victim or is she a perpetrator? She's both, right? So right. she, but she is over the overarching scale. What we're seeing is her as a victim being like Stockholm syndromed into like living out this dark side of hers that really she can't control anymore. The scene that we see in 17 where she's riding off with James and she's giving James the final goodbye. She's like possessed by like a demon here. And do you look at the, the final scene with James and um, Laura on the bike and everything? Do you just look at it now? Do you imagine that uh, Cooper's in the corner somewhere in the bushes watching? Yes, that's yeah. what's so brilliant about it is that moment always resonated with me because I always pictured Bob, but now now it, it, it's Cooper. But the whole thing with the season three with Cooper going back in time and like saving her is that it originated here in Firewalk with me. I mean, he's playing with time and he's, he's playing with time travel with Philip Jeffries and he's playing with time with agent Cooper. Yeah. And if the, it's really true that like in the, the missing pieces that when she, when he goes, Laura, like don't take the ring. If he really is Mr. C at that point, then can you imagine <laughs> the guilt he would feel now? Like he was like, I kind of sent her to hell. Like Mr. C I was the, like, he wasn't in trying to deliver a good message in that dream. He actually was dooming her. And so he feels doubly responsible for her coming back. He's got to fucking save her twice because he, Mr. C fucked up the first time. Right. And I think that if eventually, if there were to have a future iteration, how tragic would it be if Cooper realizes the only way to save Laura Palmer and to save himself is by killing her? That she yeah, has yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Was that some yeah. other theory or something? I remember that idea. That's yeah, a good idea. That's, yeah. And that would, that would be, be so tragic. Full circle. Full circle. Yeah. That that's. Then he has to die. All things considered, being shot is not as bad as I always thought it might be. As long as you can keep the fear from your mind. Some people believe that Cooper 
is dead at the end of the first series, at the end of the first season, and subsequent events are his dream. Dougie? <laughs> the end of Firewalk With Me, Laura is in the red room in the chair that Cooper is in when he's sitting in the red room. And it's almost like you could say that that's the, I wouldn't say the death chair, but it's the chair for our two protagonists. And Diane? No, no, no. It's a different, different chair. chair. It's a lighter, it's like a lighter color. It's a blue chair. It's like only people to sit in that chair are Laura after she dies and Cooper when he's trapped in the lodge. So it could be that that is some kind of purgatorial chair because when Laura shows up in season three, she sits opposite to Cooper. Cooper is in that. You know, it's, it's his version, his story, his, his point of view. In Fire Walk With Me, this is Laura's story, just like it's Cooper's story pretty much in season three. We have to talk about the soundtrack. Now, I think... The best thing Angelo Bedalamente did for, for David Lynch, a David Lynch work, was the, the score for the original series. I think the, the music for Twin Peaks, the television show, is the, the best Angelo Bedalamente and David Lynch collaboration. But I believe that the best film soundtrack is Firewalk With Me. It's not only eclectic, but uh, moving through time when Laura is like in bed, the night that you know, getting ready, you're getting ready for the, her final night, is one of the most haunting pieces. The end, the voice of love, also one of the most haunting synthesizers uh, pieces that Angelo did on par with Laura's theme, and even like the Pine Float, the Pink Room, the Requiem, the opening theme of Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me that we get the the sax- saxophone version during the Ed and Norma scene, which is one of the that best scene. scenes love that ever. Scene. That's so good. I love how he's got the breathalyzer and they're just, we're just one big smash up and their love story is, is encapsulated in those like little three minutes, these stolen moments together. You know, Ed says they're lucky, but she thinks they're one big smash up. And then, and then the sound design is the best sound design of any Lynch movie ever. The way that he manipulated really? The, uh, the soundtrack tonally to slow it down to speed it up reverse brilliant that's one thing I'd never turned down Firewalk with me the soundtrack I, the, the movie I uh, took a break but the, the soundtrack we listened to like constantly that was part of the reason why we were mocked and derided it's because it was always playing in one of our cars I know <laughs> <laughs> so our friends would get in like ugh so we always had to hear it yeah but the score is fucking great I think in the end, I did I did come around to loving it. It took several years uh, because I was very upset and sad. But now I look at it as a masterpiece. Um, it takes me often two times to watch it because as soon as she goes, do we know him? I have to <laughs> take a break, take a little break, come back to it. But I think it's really good. And just like, I mean, Cheryl Lee's performance is, is, is fantastic and haunting and the best thing she's probably ever done. I mean, and probably one of the best performances in all of Twin Peaks. Maybe Diane. No, I think she's number one. Yeah, Cooper, Cheryl no. Lee was... Yeah. Incredible. I mean, this Lynch cast her as an unknown, as a dead body. And she turned out to be a terrific actress and had a very good career. And I think he was startled by that. And I think it it helped. I mean, I think it's the reason why we have Fire Walk With Me as we know it. I don't think that if Cheryl Lee wasn't a good actress that he would have told this tale. I think that she somehow became Laura Palmer for David Lynch, one of the most defining 
performances in the Lynch canon. And we also have to mention Ray Wise. I mean, he is incredible. Great. Incredible yeah. as Leland. Yeah. Too I mean, incredible. That's why he can never get any nomina- nominations. He's too, too good. He's too, too good. He's yeah. too real. The whole, that scene with the one-armed man and the traffic light and... Uh, leave us alone (laughs) oh where were you Laura I didn't see you I was just down the street little girl down the lane the little girl down the lane yes it's a great film she embraces Laura Palmer I saw her at the Beverly Dinn Starbucks one time oh that's right I walked up I was right in line with her and I was oh my god I said oh my god you're Laura Palmer and she said yeah that was it that was it it. (laughs) (laughs) very nice it was it was a magical time because it was it was we were young and uh, we were very excited coming off of, even though Twin Peaks ended, sadly, uh, we had this movie to look forward to. I couldn't talk to anyone about this film. I couldn't uh, communicate. There was no like revelry. There's no communal love for Firewalk With Me pre-internet. I was still trapped in the lodge with Firewalk With Me and David Lynch, completely alone. I was still obsessing, but I was alone. And it was years. It took forever to find an audience, but it really wasn't until recently when we started the podcast and we met some people that... Like all of you out there listening right now. Kind of as like your your reason why we're still doing this podcast two and a half years later. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, you've got a forum. Fire Walk With Me is a very personal uh, experience for a lot of people. Yeah, I met a lot of people that really were moved by this, and I think back in 92 when it came out, people couldn't openly talk comfortably about the fact that they came from an abusive uh, you know, situation, whatever it was, a boyfriend or right. it's a parent or whatever it is. I think now they're able to, because I've met several people that were like, yeah, this really spoke to me because I went through a fucked up childhood, and I had a Laura Palmer type situation that she, they're able to use it as a catharsis and uh, a connection point to that time too, because when they saw it probably when they were younger, they, were, they felt like you, they were alone. And uh, now they can voice it uh, online and through all these communities that we've all created. We're all very happy that you were listening to us. And you're a part of our little family now, so it's good. It's all worked out well. It's kind of cathartic for us to watch this uh, this movie again. You know, one thing I would have liked to have seen in Firewalk With Me was Ben and Jerry, which we missed. And the idea that Leland and Ben and Jerry could have possibly taken a trip to One-Eyed Jacks and seen oh. Laura up there. And maybe Bob comes out and uh, he has to run. And that he ends up stealing uh, Ben and Jerry's boat, Bob. And so I want to see Bob on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> driving like a thousand miles an hour and leaving Ben and Jerry at uh, One Eye Jacks. On that note, see you next time. When I look out my window, many sights to see. And when I look in my window, so many different people to be They're strange, so strange It's very strange to me You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up every stitch It's got a narrative if you know the series, you know the whole lore.
before, mm-hmm. then you can see how, but there's giant chunks that are missing from it. But I enjoyed it as a whole. So yeah, I mean, there's a, I, I considered it to have an arc, but it wasn't satisfying. If you just watch the miss- missing pieces, you'd be like, what the fuck is going on? What the hell's happening? <laughs> All the best parts are cut out. <laughs> the one that never really gets discussed that I liked was that little Jacoby scene. Oh yeah, he's like, give me a kiss. And she hung up on him. That's, see, that's why she also needed a therapist. That's why she never had anybody to talk to in this fucking town going through this hell. Her fucking therapist is trying to bang her. Did bang her, I suppose. And so that's one reason why she felt so isolated. Don't you think also Leland would be a little bit suspect of letting Laura go to a therapist and counselor? I wonder if he ever, like, was stalking her. Well, I guess he did knock the crap out of Jacoby in the first season. <laughs> right. <laughs> that makes sense. Oh, yeah, we did have a cult of Bob. That was the thing is we seemed to be attracted to the dark side of this movie when we were in the series when we were young. And uh, so we just started uh, this cult of Bob in our high school, and we pretty much attracted all the ne'er-do-wells and lunatics that were looking for anarchy. <laughs> started, all of a sudden, Bob-like graffiti started popping up around town, around, the, around school. I'd see do- uh, dudes that got into Bob across the way, the campus, and they'd give me the Bob uh, shout, which is like, Nyeh. that was our version of Bob. Nyeh. Nyeh. <laughs> so we, we'd look at these guys, and I never even met these dudes, Harley. We'd just go, Nyeh, and they'd go, Nyeh. Okay, so how did Bob locate her at the cabin? Leland probably, they, you don't see it, but he probably gets in his car and starts driving following them. Like, behind the motorcycle, there's probably him and his, like, Cadillac. <laughs> He's got a GPS Very... tracked on her. He's probably got an early <laughs> GPS system tracking. <laughs> did we, we were at Saddle last year. Did we try to find a Judy's? Convenience store? <laughs> Judy's, stop it, no. shop. We, no, we didn't. We'll do it next time, my friend. Well, I like the idea of it being like maybe the, the I have got Bob thing, but we just watched the, the Laura Leland Drape scene. I guess if that were to be truly true, he would have dropped down from the ceiling like Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible. Like coming the, the, yeah, coming through the window. Well, here we are in the final scene. He's wrapping the plastic around her head. And uh, any final thoughts on this? Uh, pretty much gone over it. <laughs> he ties a good rap, though. Good rapper. Good rapper of bodies. Well, he's had a lot of practice. Yeah, a lot of practice. Yeah. Well, he's wrapped up like that. See, he's got a medicine bag. Why does he have the wound the, I, on his, you know, his abdomen? He's got a wound. Is was that like the blood, like the bloody towel? Did he, did yeah. he stuff it inside his shirt? Yeah, because she never like no one took struck, struck him. You know, what I'm saying he wasn't bleeding. And maybe Bob can't bleed anyway, Tom. Or maybe the Bob bubble came out. Oh, that might be it. The Bob bubble, dude. That's interesting. Do you think it would have fit in tonally? No. No. What about a post-credit sequence? Uh, I would have preferred the one with Cooper in the lodge. And Cooper like smashing his head against the fin- finishing up that, and then Annie as well. I would have kept that in there as well. But maybe not the maybe yeah credits. I would have kept that because then you would have been like, who the fuck is the night nurse? Yeah, the night nurse is a character, Tom. We need to delve <laughs> into the lore of the night nurse. She's got the ring. She probably gave it to Trump. Uh, we know he got, got it afterwards. It. Right? We know he has. He's it got from, it now. Yeah. He clearly has it now. <laughs> Did we talk about Leland, his Mephisto clown face for a second when you see him in the lodge? Well, yeah. What do you think about the Mephisto clown? I would cut it. Cut it. What? I'd cut it. <laughs> Maybe he took mind class. It's <laughs> <laughs> big Pagliacci all of a sudden. Dad! Dad! Who was that? And he, he looked familiar. Have I met him? Mike is the man. Mike. Is the man. Maura Palmer, I'll see you later. You've got to pick up every stage. You've got 
to pick up every stick.